0: Rock Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts Al John Go and Dave Bossert.
1: Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, and if this is your first time, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, music, and books, so much more. I'm your co-host Al John Go, musician. Longtime Marvel, Disney, and Star Wars fan, pop culturist. And you can email me, aljohn, Aljon, A L J O N, at skullrockpodcast.com.
0: And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, including iHeartRadio, which we're on now, Al John, yeah. which I love. Okay. And you can also uh, f- like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at
1: SkullRockPodcast.com. Wow, what a week, huh, Al John? Oh, man, always, always kind of crazy. And also, happy Chinese and Lunar New Year to everyone out there.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And, you know, the year this of is the where ox. This is where Asia shuts down for like two weeks, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the Lunar New Year is a big deal. Obviously, I'm part Chinese, so I can say, you know, happy Lunar New Year, happy year of the ox, and uh, I hope you yeah, have and, your lunar And good kicks. riddance to the year of the rat, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's been a re- really rough year you know so for for those born in the year of the rat last year um you know i'm just glad that we we made it all we you know most of us made it out okay unscathed you know and for those that that have you know been affected by last year you know that we're here for you we're here to provide you this most fun and excellent podcast for your listening enjoyment so there you go. There you go. Absolutely. That, that's all we can say. Now, what we can do is talk a little bit about what's on our mind in terms of
2: Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast,
1: Headline News. You know, Dave, before we, we uh we launch into our amazing interview segment with the legendary Floyd Norman, uh animator, storyman, and troublemaker, which I love that violence. Yes, I absolutely. love that. I love that part of that film, but we do have some Disney news uh, to talk a little bit about now. You know, it is kind of a weird time that we live in when you know uh, people say certain things uh, on the internet, and uh, mm-hmm. Gina Carano, um, who played Cara Dune in Disney Plus's The Mandalorian, awesome Star Wars show. Uh, was let go amid a social media controversy and this has kind of been brewing in the background now for a few months but uh, she's no longer employed um, by Disney or Disney plus and uh, over some some I guess mentions of of some things on social media and <laughs> it, it's a it is a crazy time in which we live and I feel that maybe, She knew that it was coming because she happens to be maybe a little bit more independent, conservative, perhaps, uh, over some of her fellow co-stars. So, uh, interesting.
0: Well, it it is kind of a shame. Uh, It's the world we live in now. It's a world of being hypersensitive and uh, a world of canceling things and you know if, if you don't like something you have to tear it down or get rid of it right and I, I I don't necessarily agree with that but you know it's um it is it is what it is I was really surprised to see this though al John I mean and, and I'm just curious what the
1: buzz is within the sort of the Star Wars fandom yeah so I think it's once again it's much like our country it's split down the middle and yeah. I see I and I see and I understand that once someone posts something that some people don't agree on, you know, it can be very divisive and, and could very well splinter your fan base. Whether you're a Marvel fan or a Disney fan or a Star Wars mm. fan, um, that's just the nature of, of being human being. But I will say this. I, I think that it's important that there is still freedom of speech. And yes. and but I also believe that what you say does have consequences, and that goes for both sides, you know. So yeah. if you're going to say something controversial, you should be held accountable for it. Um, I don't necessarily think what she said was, you know, controversial on my end, but I think you can't support free speech or at least have a conversation about tolerance without being tolerant yourself. Correct and so, absolutely,
0: you know, I agree with you on that. And i i also I also just wish that you know um, entertainers and celebrities would just keep the politics out of it. You know, just you know, keep the politics to yourself. You know, I think that um, you know, when an entertainer comes out with something that's politically charged, um, it, it, it ultimately hurts the television show they're involved with or the movie they're in or whatever it is they're doing, it, it, it sort of uh, casts a shadow onto that, don't you think?
1: Yeah. I, I, I really believe that if you want to use your social media platform as a platform to promote things you're passionate about, like for me, I love animals and I I, I despise the, the horrible treatment of animals. I, I encourage people to to rescue animals if they can, you know, and adopt and not shop and all this stuff. Or like Mark Ruffalo, uh, you know, is passionate about clean water and, and providing that. Sure. You know, and mm-hmm. even though he has a certain political point of view, I commend people like that for sharing, you know, great charitable causes that they're passionate about. But to belittle fans because they have an opposite meaning to you, people that support you and gave you the opportunity to, to be in a platform where you can cause change is kind of not cool because mm. these people help you, you know, and I, I don't think you should denigrate. I, and I feel like you, you know, I feel like if the fans support you, you owe it to your fans to not belittle them, no matter what size side of, of the political spectrum they're, they're at because they put you there. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, but, but I mean, you know, we don't want this to be a political discussion, but mm-hmm. I, I do wish that. I mean, I, they are entertainers after all. And the, the point of entertaining in escapism is to sit back and enjoy.
0: Yeah, that's it. Very true. Um, Moving on, though, uh, Disney came out with their earnings on Thursday uh, and uh, surpassed expectations. Uh, They keep just uh, sort of slugging at home uh, as far as subscribers for Disney
1: Plus. Wow, are they? You know, average monthly revenue per paid Disney subscriber has dipped 28%. Um, compared to last year, but once again, they're toting the line. They are still a force to be reckoned with. And it looks like, uh, they're going, they're growing and doing really well. And surprisingly enough, um, they're not losing as much as a lot of people think. Um, but they are losing in terms of the parks, you know, with the segment. Of course, you know, parks are shut down globally, you know, uh, 53% uh, for 3.58 billion uh, theme park losses. So it is an interesting thing to kind of keep in mind, but uh, I don't think this is going to last forever. We're, you know, hopefully on the other side of this, and I'm hoping your mom got her COVID shot at least, uh, or at least we'll be getting it soon. She has not. Oh, my she goodness. She has me. not.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, 90 years old.
1: Unbelievable. You know? unbelievable yeah.
0: but well, hey you know what uh, hopefully it'll get uh, a little bit uh, smoothed out here in the coming weeks and uh they'll really be able to get more shots in arms uh but you know there's there's just an awful lot of people jumping the line uh at this point it's it's becoming a bit of a free for all and it's it, it's a bit sad it it is uh,
1: it is i'm hoping things churn out better um we have to do better gang we have to do better um, yeah. I tell you what's doing great though. Gangbusters, Disney junior, uh, celebrating 10 years. Can you imagine 10 years? That's amazing, of Disney isn't it? I know it's, it's, it's great, you know? Um, and I love the Disney junior content, especially now with the kids at home. Doc McStuffins is great. Jake and the Neverland pirates, but mm-hmm. all that stuff that they're doing with Disney junior is just wonderful stuff. I love the new Marvel stuff. I love, of course, the Mickey mouse clubhouse is always on rotation here at the house But congratulations, Disney Plus, for really helping parents out. (laughs) And
0: and there was another milestone, too. 20 years at uh, Disney California Adventure Park uh, at the Disneyland Resort in Anaheim. And I have to tell you, I I remember when when this uh, theme park was first hatched uh, and uh, when it first opened. I mean, holy mackerel. It was like a ghost town uh, at, at that park. Unbelievable. Um, I, I remember taking the girls down there um, not long after it opened and, and and especially if it was an overcast day Al John I would say let's go down to California Adventure no one will be there <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I tell you that has grown to be one of my favorite parks well what is it my favorite park I mean I love Disneyland don't get sure. me wrong but now uh, you know the the fresh coat of paint there at DCA makes it really really fun, and I really appreciate that that place. and And I know Dave, you've been involved in so many projects there at the parks, yeah, including DCA. I, I,
0: I, absolutely, and and I will say, Al, John, that um, you know, from when it first opened to what it is today, I mean, it is a robust theme park. Now there is a lot to do and some great attractions in there.
1: I tell you my favorite still to this day without question is Cars Land I love Radiator Springs I love mm-hmm. Radiator Springs Racers to me it's one of the pinnacle a uh, most kind of immersive experience that I've ever felt at a Disney park. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And I love everything that's coming to the park, including the Avengers. And I cannot mm. wait to check this out. And, uh, and I really dig it. Um, And probably one of the best nighttime spectaculars world of color in, in the world. I absolutely love that nighttime spectacular. It is my favorite nighttime show, Dave. And I know this because I know you're, you're, you know, very much involved with, with that, but I have to tell you, it's, it literally is my favorite.
0: I, I can't tell you how much fun I had working on that. Uh, you know, the, the guy, the, the, the brainchild of, of World of Color was, was a guy, an Imagineer named Steve Davidson. And uh, he was just fantastic to work with. I really enjoyed working with him. And we would work on that show in the middle of the night when everything was closed down there. Uh, we would be going down to the park at, you know, 11 o'clock at night until, you know, three, four or five in the morning. Um, and it, it really it was something to see that come together. And what was so great about that show and what is so great about that show is that so many dif- so many people from different disciplines uh, came together. Um, you know, you had engineers, you had artists, you had, um, you know, show designers, you had all of these different people that came together to create this, uh, this really incredible nighttime
1: spectacular. Talk about synergy and my hats off too to the lighting directors. I mean, absolutely amazing but every aspect of that show is amazing and one of these days dave um when when we don't maybe have a guest we should talk about it because i love that show i I just love it
0: absolutely there's there's
1: some interesting sort of behind the scene things we could discuss Mm, absolutely well speaking of behind the scenes dave one of your one of the guys behind the scenes of so many iconic disney moments disney legend is going to be joining us here
0: Absolutely. And I can't wait for that to happen. Uh, Let's go into it. We got to go. We got to do this now. Absolutely. Let's
1: do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time.
0: Well, Al John, I got to tell you, I'm excited because we have a Disney legend in the house. Uh, We've got our friend Floyd Norman, who is an animator, a story artist, a comic book artist, a writer. I mean, he's just done it all, and he's done it all for a very long time in the animation business. He's worked at the Walt Disney Animation Studios, Hanna-Barbera, Ruby Spears, Film Roman, and Pixar. And I'm just so excited, Floyd, to have you on the show. Well, Welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. You know, I, I gotta say Floyd, uh, you and I have worked together over the years, which, uh, which has always been a pleasure. Uh, yeah. but I, I really want our listeners to, to get a sense. And I, I always love when I'm talking to artist friends from the business about how you got started, you know, like, you know, we, we had Tony Bancroft on a couple weeks ago and, and Tony said, oh, I, you know, Tom and I were, were the geeks in high school drawing cartoons <laughs> to try and get the girls, you yeah. know, and, uh, but in high school you grew up in, in Santa Barbara, is that right? Yes. Yes.
2: Fashionable Santa Barbara.
0: Yeah. And so in high school, were you uh, always drawing and, and uh, doing cartoons or how did you get into it?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I was, uh, well, two things were my, my interests in high school uh, music and, and drawing uh, cartooning and, uh, Kind of on a side note, one of my fellow musicians uh, at Santa Barbara High School was a guy named Dave Doctor, who is the father of uh, Pete Doctor, the uh, well-known uh, Pixar animator and director. Wow! So, so I went to high school with Pete Doctor's father. <laughs> wow, that's can amazing. You imagine, can you imagine that? That's but yeah, it, it was it was art, it was music, and, and those were my my two passions. And I knew that one way or another, I was going to have a career in music or a career in art. And it all kind of came together where I realized what I wanted to do was go to Hollywood and work for Walt Disney.
0: Wow. And, and so when you're in high school, uh, were you starting to think about what art school you wanted to go to or how you were going to get further training as an artist?
2: Yeah, you know, in those days, uh, you didn't think much about art school specifically. I mean, we were all thinking about after graduation, going off to college. So we were really thinking more about university. Mm. And it was while in high school, while I was uh, working a part time job for a local cartoonist, that uh, one of the artists who worked for this cartoonist had been a student many years ago at a school called Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles. And she recommended that if you were going to go off to art school, uh, she recommended Art Center. And so that's where I eventually applied. Uh, And once I graduated from Santa Barbara High School, I was off to Los Angeles and uh, to to begin my first uh, semester at Art Center.
0: You know, there, there's a lot of um, a lot of the artists in the animation business have either sort of gone to Cal arts or art center uh, school of design in Pasadena. And um, uh, so you obviously know a lot of uh, colleagues uh, who also attended that school. Uh, Oh, you bet. Yeah. were, Were you one of those students that went for a year or two and then got hired right away at a studio or did you go for four years?
2: Well, let me tell you that one of the things that happened that, that sent me off to art school was when I first uh, applied for a job at the Walt Disney Studio after graduating from high school. And so I, I actually drove down to the Disney Studio on a Saturday morning. The Studio was closed, but uh, the personnel office was still open. Remember those days? They called it the personnel office.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: long, long before HR. Well, anyway, I I, uh, I wanted a job, and they uh, they offered me a job in traffic. And then of course, uh, those of you who work at Disney know what traffic is. That's when you work there as a messenger, basically. And so the guy in and in, uh, in personnel said, "You know what?" I can can hire you in traffic, but what I would recommend instead is that you go off to art school. I think that would be the wiser choice. And that's really how I made my choice to uh, enroll at Art Center College of Design, because it was actually recommended that uh, by by the people at Walt Disney Studios that uh, it would be a wiser choice to go to school than to accept a job in traffic so that that's what that's what happened and that's so awesome. I was a yeah I was an art art center for about two years when I received a call about two years later from the Walt Disney studio because they needed to bring in uh, uh, young artists to train for the, for the animation department.
0: And that was really on Sleeping Beauty. And and they were really staffing up because that was a very um, a labor-intensive film from a drawing standpoint.
2: You bet. You bet. Yeah. Uh, they had around, I think, 600 artists working on Sleeping Beauty back in the 1950s. And because it was such a, a, a long-drawn-out job, you know, I mean, the picture was in production over a period of years... They needed a lot of artists. They needed a lot of uh, uh, animation personnel to just do all those drawings. Keep in mind, we were making drawings in those days by hand, yep. uh, literally drawing every <laughs> every frame of film. Almost, uh, it sounds insane, but that's how films were made, you know, back in the old days.
0: And and I wanna I wanna touch on something here uh, because it is Black History Month. I wanna ask you, Floyd. What was it like to be the first Black artist to be hired at the studio? And, and this is going to be sort of a multi-part question. So why don't you start with, you know, what it was like being hired there?
2: Fascinating question. And uh, I've, I've uh, answered this question many, many times over the years because people, I think, expect to hear a different answer. And the truth is, uh, when I came to the Walt Disney Studios back in 1953, my first visit was in 1953, later uh, after art school being hired in 1956, I gave absolutely no thought to my ethnicity or the color of my skin. Uh, I gave it no thought and nor did I think the people at Disney uh, gave it any thought either. So people often ask me, what was it like being the first? And I, I keep thinking, first what? You know, <laughs> because because all of us young kids who were starting out at Disney, for many of us, this was our first job. So that's what was significant about first was it was our first you know opportunity to be employed. But other than that, there was no significance given to being African-American. Uh, any more than it was for my colleagues uh, being uh, Asian or Latino mm-hmm. or my colleagues who came from all over the world. Jacques Charvet from Paris, France, uh, Eva Schneider from Zurich, Switzerland, Tom Yakutis from Lithuania. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave no thought to to what we were, it was a matter of becoming a competent Disney artist.
0: And and it was really all about the talent. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what mattered the most was your talent and what you put down on paper and what ultimately made it up onto the big screen, right? That's correct.
2: That's correct. Uh, the big job you had when you came to the Walt Disney Studios was to prove yourself uh, worthy <laughs> of, of working there, of being, uh, being an artist who had the qualifications to, to work on a film like Sleeping Beauty uh, that was really rigorous and uh, meticulous. And you had to know your, you had to have those drawing chops to mm-hmm. be able to work on a film like that. So rather than think about uh, what you were, uh, nobody considered uh, your gender or, or your ethnicity or anything else. They, they were concerned about how well can he or she draw? How well can they draw? That's what mattered. And not, not who you were or what you were, but, but the level of your talents.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, and, and and I'm imagining that the environment w- there w- was very much like that, yeah. right? Uh, because I, so. I remember, I mean, I started there in the early 1980s and, and, and it just felt like a very different environment. It was one that was just really focused on creating great art. Right, right and there was nothing else, there was no undercurrent of anything else going on.
2: Yeah, yeah, and to Disney's credit where they've often been accused of, uh, animation's often been accused of being a boys club, I would be quick to say that uh, at least half of our class, and you could call us all of us kids who came in at that time, our class was almost half and half male and female. Right. So so even back in the 1950s, there was little uh, gender bias.
0: Yeah, and, and 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 Walt my 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 view has always been that Walt uh uh gave uh people uh opportunities. Uh right. and, and it was opportunities that were based on their their skill set, their talent. Exactly. Only yeah. right that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So uh so what was it like working on Sleeping Beauty as your first picture?
2: Uh, (laughs) challenging.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What, what unit, yeah. What unit were you in? Who were you working with? What were you doing? Okay.
2: uh, Here's what happened. And, and I, and I had to learn that this is my first time at Disney. So I'm kind of like learning the ropes, learning everything from the ground up. Uh, When a, when a picture was uh, in crunch, you know, when production was hot and heavy and they had to get the film done, a lot of animators were often bumped back down to assistant because they, they needed to get all these drawings done. So, my uh, unit lead was a guy named Freddie Helmick, who was a Disney animator, but Freddie got bumped back down to assistant animator because they, they had to have a unit to clean up the fairies, uh, flora, fauna, and merryweather. So, we were the fairy unit, and our job uh, all the fairies that appeared in the film. We're going to pass through us, through our unit for cleanup. We had to finalize all the animators' drawings. So with Freddie as our lead, and he was a very talented guy, a talented animator as well as draftsman, he was our boss. And then under Freddie, who was our key, we had two, uh, two or three additional assistant animators. And then under those assistant animators, we had a number of breakdown artists. And then under those breakdown artists, we had a number of in-betweeners. So you can see the units were structured, Uh, they were sizable, and uh, and that's how it worked, you know, from the animators to the key assistant, the key assistant to the assistants, breakdown to in-between, and that's how the uh, production was handled throughout the film. Plus, everything we did had to be okayed by two very tough guys who supervised the fairies, and that was Frank Thomas, and Ollie Johnson. Right. And so all of our work had to pass through those guys, the directing animators. And believe me, they were tough. And I kid you not when I say a lot of the scenes we did, we had to do sometimes three times before we got it right.
0: Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Frank, I didn't realize I didn't realize yeah. those guys were that tough.
2: Frank, Frank, and Ollie were—they were—they were tough men. They the stuff did not get by them. It, it had to go through so many approval levels. You know, not only did our uh, unit key had to approve the scenes, but then they had to be approved by the animator, the guy who animated the scene, could be a Hal Ambro or any number of animators, and then it, they had to be approved by the directing animators, Frank and Ollie. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, uh, once we got past Frank and Ollie, we were home free because the directors, uh, and that was Jerry Geronimi, uh, Wooly Reiterman, Les Clark, and uh, who else? Eric Larson. Yeah, were our directors on the film. And generally, once it got past Frank and Ollie, we were we were home free because. Mm-hmm. Clear sailing. Yeah. Selling. After that, yeah.
0: that yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. really something. Yeah. For our listeners, can can you explain just what, you know what the key assistant, the breakdown, and the in betweener uh, does. Uh, yeah. Because I, I, you know, yeah. I think that some of these terms are, are are starting to fade away, and people don't understand what they are. Uh, yeah, I, I think right. coming yeah. from you, it would be it would be great to hear what your thoughts are on it.
2: Well, you know, when the director hands out a uh, scene to an animator who's going to say, "There's a scene in Sleeping Beauty, and it's going to be the three fairies," he's going to hand that scene out to an animator, and that animator is going to rough that scene. Uh, you know, rough pencil drawings. Uh, he'll do the entire scene and, and they'll, they'll be somewhat tightened up by his assistant that will begin to finalize, you know, the drawing. So it's presentable. So when they show the scene to the director, that director can, can say, okay, uh, this scene has been okayed for cleanup. And once that animated scene, it's all rough animation, you know, it's very loose, very rough. It goes to our unit, uh, to Freddie, who would take that scene, all rough drawings, and make a few key drawings. He will finalize what he thinks are the key poses in that scene. He will pass that on to his assistant, who will do more key drawings, you know, the the extreme poses in the scene that uh, describe the scene. The assistant will clean up a few more drawings, he will that assistant will then hand it on to his breakdown artist who will begin to break down the the very you know because there are many, many drawings in a scene, he'll break down the action, filling in those missing drawings. He will then pass that on to the in-betweeners. And the in-betweeners, that's the last rung of the ladder. They will add uh, the drawings that are necessary. And, and these drawings are all described on the animators' charts. So we know how many drawings will be required for that scene because the charts show, uh, you know, the keys, the, the breakdowns, the in-betweens. And when all those drawings are done, and, and, and again, a very loose and rough form, they will be shown to the animator who will then show them to the directing animators, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, in our case. And then once Frank and Ollie give their approval, then we can take those somewhat cleaned up drawings and then finalize them, tight pencils. And that means once those tight pencils are finalized and approved, then and only then can they be sent to ink and paint, where painters will meticulously ink every drawing by hand, flop it over, and paint every cell by hand. It was a long, drawn-out, tedious process, but one that, you know, there was no shortcut in. Everything was done uh, meticulously, beautifully inked, beautifully painted, oftentimes with a number of uh, what we call self-colored lines. That means the drawings were inked, not, not just in black, but in multiple colors. So there was a uh, so much work that went into each individual cell used in Sleeping Beauty. And believe you me, there were thousands and thousands of cells, all inked
0: and painted. Hundreds of Andy. thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> every, uh, and, and, every one and, of them, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the significance is that uh, Sleeping Beauty was actually uh, the last film to to uh, be compared entirely inked and painted by hand right. because the next picture was 101 Dalmatians which introduced the Xerox process Right. Which, yeah. which to some degree replaced much of the inking process even though there was still some custom inking that was yeah. done on some cells right. uh, but but the large scale of uh, an inker tracing an entire drawing onto a cell uh, kind of went away at that point but you, yeah. you skipped 101 Dalmatians because you got drafted.
2: I skipped most of it. Here's what happened. Uh, I had already moved on to uh, 101 Dalmatians. Oh, okay. Uh, after uh, completing Sleeping Beauty, we, uh, a team of us began work on 101 Dalmatians. And it was while I was doing that that I was drafted into the service where I was whisked off to Fort Ord, California for basic training. And after uh, 16 weeks of basic training at Fort Ord, I was then packed up and shipped off to Korea. <laughs> wow. <laughs> where, where I would serve a, a tour of duty of 14 months uh, in Korea. What, bran- was, what, what branch were you in? I was in the Army. I, Army. Was, dra- okay. I was drafted. Uh, you know, that's when the draft was in full effect. So sure. believe you me, I was not the only one. Uh, same as as in World War II, a number of Disney artists were drafted into the military. If you were of draft age, chances are you were going to be drafted and serve in the military. And many of my Disney colleagues served uh, the same way I did. Uh, we were drafted. We went overseas. We came back and returned to our old jobs at Disney, as I did uh, in 1960 when I was finally. Not totally separated because I still had two more years of reserve duty, Mm -hmm. but I was allowed to come back to my old job at Disney and believe it or not, finish up on the 101 Dalmatians that that was still in production.
0: Okay, so and, yeah, <laughs> I, I got I got to ask you this though. Um, how was it at Disney? Like, if, if, if as an artist working at Disney, all of a sudden you walk in one day and go, "Hey, I got a draft notice," and were they like, "Okay, go do your service and then come back, your job will be here"? Was that exactly? Kind of how oh, was? yeah,
2: and that and that was standard procedure. I, I believe it was probably a government uh, procedure where, if you were drafted while on the job that company was obligated to give you your job back once you had served your your uh military obligation Ah. so all of us who were drafted into the military once we had completed our tour of active service Mm. disney was obligated to give us our job back so not only did i get my job back i returned to the same film i had started some two years earlier
0: Wow. That's amazing. So, so the Korean war was over at that point, but we had a presence in South Korea. Yes, uh, we did. A a military presence, but the Vietnam war hadn't really kicked in uh, at at that point. So, so really you were on active duty, but you weren't in a combat situation.
2: We were in a, a very odd situation in Korea because it turns out there was no peace, uh, The hot war had stopped, but there was still no declared peace treaty. Mm. So it was called, what do they called it? We were in this weird transition in between a hot war and- and, Was it
0: like a skirmish?
2: You were in a skirmish? Yeah, we, we were in sort of a skirmish situations where- the military described them as incidents. <laughs> ah. so that was a military term. But if the North Koreans attacked us, an unprovoked attack, and they did that from time to time, we were not at a full scale war, but neither were we at peace either. So uh, we had attacks on our bases from time to time. So it was not a relaxed situation. We carried weapons. We were armed, uh, armed and ready. I, I carried a weapon with me uh, most of the time because we were in a war situation, although we were not in a hot war. So mm-hmm. you could be somewhat relaxed, but not but not totally relaxed.
0: Were, were you at all uh, utilizing any of your artistic ability while you were in the military?
2: Oh, believe you, me, yeah. <laughs> once your commanding officer, if once the word gets to them that you had once worked for Disney, Oh, boy, can they think of all kinds of jobs for you to do. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> now, now, all of a sudden, they feel they have an artist at their disposal, an artist who is obligated to do whatever the commander-in-chief wants. So
0: I did everything. Floyd at so-and-so's birthday. We need a yeah, caricature. Floyd, need a caricature. we need this.
2: <laughs> yeah. Or I need a I need a mural painted in my office. Or I need something. <laughs> yeah, it was that that can and yet that wasn't a bad thing because many a time on a cold, snowy winter day where I believe you me, and I was uh I was up in, toward North Korea, up near Panmunjom. Mm-hmm. And it was cold up there and the winters were cold and brutal. Yeah. So while my unit was out, uh, digging in the snow, I was often inside a building painting a mural. <laughs> so it wasn't always a bad thing to be pegged for a job by your, by your commanding officer who wanted you to paint a mural in a particular building that kept you inside out of the, out of the cold and ice. And uh, after a while, I became grateful for that
0: job. <laughs> well, there's certainly benefits to being an artist, aren't there? <laughs> you bet. You bet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you finish up in Korea and then you come back, you finish your service, you come back and uh, you help finish off 101 Dalmatians, but really you go on to Sword in the Stone and you're now an assistant animator at this point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after completing the 101 Dalmatians, uh, our next film was uh, The Sword in the Stone sword and the stone had not yet uh moved into production so i worked on a short cartoon first and it was called the legend of uh, Windwagon wagon smith ah. and that was my first opportunity to animate because my animator art stevens we had two animators on the film julius Finson and art stevens and they gave me the opportunity to animate my first scenes on that little short cartoon called the legend of Windwagon wagon smith
0: and that, and that's always how it happened. I mean, I, I of all the artists I've talked to over the years, it was always a uh, uh, an established animator who gives you the break. Who, yeah. Hey, here's a here's a scene you can do. You that's know, right. and exactly. And you, and you get that first uh, opportunity to start to animate, and uh, and it just builds from there. Right,
2: right, yeah. I, I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to work two with two. Great guys. I really admired these guys and uh, both Julius Vinson, we called him Sven and Art Stevens had worked for Ward Kimball. So I was, I was, I, I knew them a little bit because I used to hang around Ward Kimball's unit up on the second floor of the animation building. So I knew Art and Sven. And so when I had the opportunity to work with them on Wind Wagon Smith, it was again, a great learning opportunity for a young kid just beginning to learn his animation chops. And so, boy, that was uh, that an invaluable experience,
0: and I really appreciate it. Wow. Yeah. And uh, from Sword in the Stone, you went on to Jungle Book?
2: Well, no. Uh, there was a little film in between
0: called Mary Poppins. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, so, I didn't realize you had worked yeah, on Mary Poppins. Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah, you know,
2: it's one of those... Times when we move right from one project to another. Sure. So Dalmatians to Sword and Stone, from Sword and Stone to Mary Poppins, from Mary Poppins to The Jungle Book, and that's that's how it all worked out. So and and I was on Mary Poppins for at least a year. Uh, that animation and all of that uh, because we were compositing animation with live action, which meant that a good deal of our work was done on ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what that's yeah. like.
0: <laughs> sure. And, and just for our listeners knowledge, yeah. uh, when yeah. you say something's on ones, that means you're, you're, you're drawing, uh, uh a, a drawing for every single frame of film. Exactly. Uh, whereas sometimes in regular animated films, you might have something on what's known as twos where yeah. there's a drawing every other frame, uh, uh, or you might have a hold where yeah. you know part of the body is held and the the head turns or something like that. But right. uh, when you're drawing on ones, when you're doing films like Mary Poppins or Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you've got to do drawings for every single frame of film. That's right.
2: Yeah, yeah, a lot of work, and and that's why you know that sequence. I, I don't. I, I I never timed how many minutes of animation we did for Mary Poppins. Not quite that much but there was so much work involved Mm -hmm. and because it was all done by hand, it just took, it took a year to do. I mean, keep in mind they had already finished shooting all of the live action and we really couldn't start our work until the live action had been completed because Mm -hmm. we had to composite uh, our drawings with, with the live action. So we had to wait until Dick Van Dyke, Julie Andrews and the whole team had finished shooting the live action and then we could begin work on the animation and that took another year, you know, mm. and then and then uh, maybe a few months of post, and then the film was ready for uh, release. So it was a long haul on Mary Poppins. But I'll tell you, it was a fun project to work on. I had the opportunity to get to meet Dick Van Dyke and and, and all of these marvelous actors. Uh, I got a chance to meet a lot of the actors, you know, who who worked on that film, and so uh it was a real it was a real fun project and walt loved it walt disney was in heaven he loved doing mary poppins uh he had looked forward to making that movie for so many years and now here he was having the opportunity to make this film and to and to fulfill a promise he made to his daughters so uh yeah it was it was a, a great experience
0: and, and, and by the way uh, If people want to understand What that story of Walt Wanting to make that film And having to deal with uh, P.L. Travers yeah. The author of the books <laughs> uh, uh, See the film uh, Saving Mr. Banks You uh, bet Because yeah. that gives you A good um, uh, background On on what Walt went through And for how long Walt went through that yeah. Before he yeah. actually was able To make a picture That's, that's, right. that's really something else uh, By the way I did want to point out that the premiere of Mary Poppins was the first fundraiser for Cal arts. Really? Oh yes. My. It was, it was, uh, the, the premiere was a benefit for Cal arts. The first, uh, first benefit for California to the arts in wow. California here. Wow. So, um, but anyway, uh, you left the studio for a little bit. And and before we get to that, I, I yeah. want to ask you this question. You were working on Jungle Book and Walt Disney passes away. What was that like at the studio? And what were the repercussions at the studio after Walt passed away?
2: Well, uh, boy, that's quite a story all by itself. Keep in mind that I never wanted to work on the Jungle Book, so I purposely was not on a feature unit during the, the Jungle Book's production or at least story development. I was uh, down in animation uh, assisting one of my favorite animators, Ward Kimball, and having a grand old time. And it was while I was doing that, that Bill Peet, and I think everybody should know who Bill Peet is, uh, one of Walt Disney's finest story men. Uh, Bill Peet, who had been with the studio since, I think, the 1930s, Bill Peet got into an argument with Walt Disney and walked off the Jungle Book. He not only quit the movie, he quit the Disney studio. Well, this was not about to stop Walt Disney. And so Walt said, well, Bill's gone. (laughs) Bill Peet has left, but we're still going to make the movie. And so he put together a new story crew, and lo and behold, I found myself a member of that new story crew. I found out one late Friday afternoon when my boss, Andy Ingman, called me into his office and said, Floyd, pack up your stuff. Monday, you're going to be upstairs uh, in Wooly's unit working on the Jungle Book. And I, I, I just couldn't believe what Andy had just told me. It just didn't seem to make any sense at all. And like, me, how, how could this happen? I wondered, you
0: know. Let, let me ask you this. You said uh, uh, just moments ago that you didn't want to work on Jungle Book. How come?
2: I did. Well, you know what? I had already worked on a number of feature films. And, and you know what it's like to work on a feature film. It's a long, drawn out, tedious <laughs> process. Sure. And so when you work on a content that's shorter, uh, things tend to move faster and you get things done
0: and there's more it's, satisfaction, too, because yeah, you, you, yeah, get more, that pay, you get that payoff, really, uh, you know, of, of seeing it in a theater with an audience, you yeah. know, sooner than if you're working on a feature and you're spending three years on it, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. And so that was my reason for not wanting to work. on. I had nothing against the film. I just didn't want to spend another two or three years working on one project where if I could work on shorts... I knew I'd only be on that film for maybe a month or two at, at the most, as opposed to two or three years on one project. So while I was working for Ward uh, on, on short on short form content, uh, lo and behold, I get paid to move upstairs to work on story on The Jungle Book. And bear in mind, I had never worked in story before. I hadn't worked on short cartoons. I hadn't worked on television. I hadn't worked on feature. Uh, never uh, in, in the uh, area of story. So all of a sudden, I was sort of being tossed into the deep end of the pool. Now, why would somebody do that? Why would a Disney veteran take a chance on a kid who's totally green, who's never done it before? Why, why would they do that? well i thought I thought about it, and I realized they would only do that if somebody very, very important told them to do so <laughs> I began to put things together. You know, why were there no objections why did Why did no one contest this decision? Well, that's clearly because it was made by Walt Disney himself
1: who's wow. going to
2: who's going to second guess the boss? who's going to say, "Hey, Walt, what are you doing? you know bringing this kid into story. He he doesn't know how to do this job.
0: So, and, and, uh, and what happened? What happened? You got up there the I, the following Monday and it, you just jumped into the deep end.
2: I literally did. I I, I, I never forget uh, that Monday morning, uh, Larry Clemens, who was one of the uh, writers on the film, uh, and, and Larry was a veteran. He'd been with the studio for a number of years, a long, long career. And anyway, uh, Larry comes into my office with... Uh, with some typewritten notes he you know he worked uh, the writers and, and we didn't have a lot of writers who actually wrote with a typewriter but larry was one of those guys who actually typed out uh, script pages not so much script pages but outline pages and larry had outlined uh, a sequence you know in broad strokes so he handed me uh, his uh, typewritten pages and i sat across the desk from a disney veteran named vance gary now, mm. so Vance was a, a wonderful guy, a very talented story man who had been with the studio a number of years. And Vance was a very laid back, mellow kind of a guy and nothing ruffled Vance. He was always cool and relaxed and the, he made you feel at ease because he felt so relaxed. And so I, I, I asked Vance because after all he was the experienced veteran, what do I do now? And Vance said, uh, start uh, building a storyboard, you know, <laughs> take Larry's notes and, and uh, you know, start to build a sequence. And that's exactly what I did. I just started storyboarding based on Larry's uh, rough outline. And uh, I learned that's how I learned how to storyboard by doing a storyboard. You know, what, yeah. what, what what better way to learn storyboarding than by doing a storyboard? But,
0: but, but you know something, I think I think it's so true that, you know, no matter what your art school training is, yeah. the first six months you're in a studio setting, you just learn so much. Oh, yeah. yeah. So much more. And, uh, and you really sort of, you know, it, it, it's trial by fire. You yeah, know, exactly. You're, you're you're in there uh, learning as you're going, and that's almost the best way to learn, I think. In some it instances, is. You know? It
2: is, and and because there's kind of an intensity that you would never have in school, the fact that you're going to be you're doing a sequence that's going to be shown to Walt Disney, you know, not to your teacher in school, not to your colleagues, but it's going to be pitched to Walt Disney himself. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That really motivates you to do your best
0: and, and you're and you're under the gun from a from from a schedule timeline, yeah, right? you know, because yeah. you're, you're you're being told you've got to board this by a certain date because that's when we're pitching it right. Well you know
2: the the funny part about that certain date is that was never definite because there we never had a certain date to to pitch to Walt Disney because we never knew when Walt was going to make himself available. (laughs) So so we knew we had to get our job done, but we had no idea when Walt was going to look at it. At that
0: point, at that point, uh, Floyd, was was Walt still just wandering the halls and dropping in on people unannounced? Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And that was another motivating factor was because
2: Walt had a habit of not always announcing his visits. In other words, you might, if you were lucky, you might get a heads up from one of Walt's personal assistants saying that he may be coming down to your unit. But more often than not, Walt Disney would show up unannounced. He would literally just walk into your room and there he is. And so <laughs> so that kind of unnerves you as well, because you know that any day and any time of the day, Walt could just suddenly come walking into your office. Because he can do that, he's the boss. He can go wherever he wants to go. (laughs) And
0: and what was that like? I mean, I guess the impression I've always had is that Walt was one of these guys that hated to have big meetings or formal meetings. He wanted to have like small groups in somebody's office, say, hey, what are you working on? Show me this and and then throw a few ideas. Is that how it worked with him? I think Walt
2: was the kind of guy who hated the protocol and, and structure. He really loved to do stuff off the cuff to walk into a room and say, hey, what are you doing there? You know, show me what you got or what is this? And he was that kind of a guy. And he did this consistently all over the studio. Mm -hmm. Walt was the kind of guy who would be walking down and he would see the gardener planting some flowers, you know, out on the, on the studio lot, and Walt would stop and talk to the gardener and say, "What kind of flowers are those, and why are you planting them like that?" He was just a guy who was inquisitive, mm-hmm. always wanting to know what you were doing and why you were doing it that way, and um, you know, he really wasn't a scary kind of guy. I think a lot of people get the notion that Walt Disney was this this intense, uh, you know, uh, you know, this, this megalomaniac, this, this, boss who was overbearing and, and, and a daunting presence. No, Walt was kind of like a relaxed kind of laid back kind of guy. You kept him happy. You did your job. He was going to treat you well, you know, you didn't have to worry about Walt Disney. And so as I, I tell people that Walt Disney was certainly a daunting presence and he was a very demanding boss. But having said that, he was the best boss
0: I ever worked for that's amazing yeah the, the, that's just so great I mean he I mean Walt at, at his core was an artist yeah uh, and, and so I'm imagining he he wanted to be one of the guys and just yeah. or you know one of the artists who would just walk in and and, and just chat about what was going on on a particular yeah. project and yeah and, and that kind of a thing which is amazing right. what, what 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 was it like when when Walt uh, went into the hospital and then passed away?
2: Well, keep in mind, uh, here's the sequence of events. Uh, We had finally completed story on the Jungle Book, and this had to be late in 1966, probably uh, October, November. Uh, We finally, and I don't, I honestly don't remember the exact date, but we showed Walt the last boards on the Jungle Book late in 1966, late in the year. Uh, Walt gave his approval, and uh, those boards uh, then went into Music Room. That's what we call the director's unit. When storyboards were approved, they went to Music Room, and that meant the director began to prepare the sequence for uh, layout and animation. So all of our boards had gone to Music Room. So our job was essentially done. Uh, Vance and I could move on because story work on The Jungle Book uh, had been completed at least by November of 1966. And I think it was around November, Walt went into the hospital for his first uh, surgery. Now, we were somewhat misled because we thought Walt was going into the hospital for uh, surgery on a back injury that he had received many years earlier. So I don't know if if we were misled on purpose or we just got the story wrong, but we had no idea, absolutely no idea about the seriousness of his illness.
0: Yeah. yeah. My understanding is that he was originally going in to have surgery on his neck, which was an old, it was an old polo injury. Exactly. That's right. And and it was calcifying and he was having some neck pain and they were going to go in and do that. And they wound up doing some pre-op tests on him. Yeah. Which uh, which is really how they pretty much discovered the cancer, yeah. Um, and so they were going to go in and uh, do surgery on that instead, yeah. yeah. Um, but when when you uh, were you there when you were pitching the final boards, uh, for for his approval, and and what how did he look? You know, was he still smoking? Was he coughing? I mean, you know, what what was his general uh, demeanor?
2: totally the same as he had been all year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why Walt's passing came as such a shock. Because when a person uh, mm-hmm. is, is you know, seriously ill, you, you, expect, uh, you expect physical signs, you expect them to be uh, tired, mm-hmm. run down, uh, to look poorly, the skin sallow and pale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walt was the same Walt Disney he always was. Yeah, he was still smoking. And he, he never stopped smoking, but he still he, he was still the same Walt Disney he had been all throughout 1966. Mm. So we noticed absolutely no change in his demeanor and his appearance. Nothing about him seemed changed. So when we heard about going into the hospital, that seemed almost routine. Mm-hmm. He's just going in for this uh, neck surgery because it's an old uh, polo injury. He had meant to have it taken care of, uh, you know, years earlier, and, and now fi- he finally had the time to get around to it. So there was no thought when Walt went into St. Joseph's Hospital across the street. We all thought, well, he'll be, be- he'll be back after uh, you know short recovery. He'll be back on the job. So again, this this discovery of the cancer, uh, you know, I wasn't even aware of it. You know, uh, I, I don't think I was even aware of Walt's condition until after his passing mm. because nobody, I mean, the family knew uh, once that exploratory surgery was done, uh, the family was well aware of Walt's condition. But those of us employees had no idea the seriousness of Walt's illness. That's why when we received news of his passing that Friday, that Friday afternoon, total shock, total shock, totally unexpected. We had no idea. And it was
0: devastating news. Devastating. They they closed the studio, right? They they uh, told everybody to go home.
2: I don't recall an announcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe there was one. Uh, back in those days, we didn't have email, you know. Uh, sure. You would get you would get the news at best by a phone call. So I do not recall a studio-wide announcement or messages being sent around. All I know was people just left their desk, got in their car, and drove home. Mm. It was that kind of a thing. Uh, wow. I, th- I think people were literally in shock. And I kid you not when I said I saw grown men in the parking lot, in cheers, grown men in cheers wow. in the parking lot. Uh, the loss of Walt Disney was unimaginable. I mean, again, we all know, you know, we're not immortal. We all we all know that uh, one day we're going to we're going to move on. But this came seemingly out of nowhere, out of nowhere, and and people said Walt's gone, and people would look at you with disbelief. What? Walt, Walt has passed away. We couldn't believe it. Mm. We could not believe it, you know? So I'll never forget that Friday afternoon. Just, just
0: uh, unbelievable. Now a lot of people don't realize it but his uh, Walt's brother Roy O Disney yeah. had already retired right? He he had retired from the stu- from from the company from yeah. because he was 10 years older than Walt. Yes he was. Yeah, he was the yeah. older brother. Yeah. Yeah, and and so he wound up coming back out of retirement to yeah. to sort of head the company and and, and sort of keep it going, right?
2: Well, Ron Miller told me that uh, the reason Roy came back out of uh, retirement was because Roy had uh, made a promise. This is on, on Walt's uh, deathbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Roy had uh, visited Walt uh, early Friday morning. Uh, Walt, would, uh, Walt would pass away that same morning. It wasn't in the afternoon. Walt actually passed away Friday morning. Okay. And Roy, Roy Disney was with Walt when Walt passed away. And Roy made a promise to Walt. That he would finish Walt Disney World mm-hmm. in Orlando, yeah, and and that's why uh, Roy came back to work only to keep a promise that he had made to his younger brother, that he would complete Walt Disney World.
0: And, and, and then, and, yeah, and, and and then Roy O passed away was six or eight months after Walt Disney World opened.
2: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. as though the completion of Walt Disney World was the only thing keeping keeping Roy. Yeah keeping yeah. Roy going you know <laughs> he had to he had to uh, complete that
0: promise he made to his brother yeah, yeah. He, he also he also uh, completed Cal arts uh, yes, he did he, he got Cal arts opened as well yeah, yeah. you know Wow that, I,
2: I, I'm sure I'm sure Roy made a number of promises to Walt uh, yeah. that, that morning and uh, wow, that, that was quite a I mean uh, Ron Miller was there and he told me about it he, he wasn't in the same room with, yeah. uh, Walt and, and Roy. But he said he, when he arrived at St. Joseph's hospital that morning, he saw Roy O. Disney at the, at the, at the foot of, uh, Walt's bed. And he was about to enter the room when Roy Disney, uh, waved him off and, uh, basically, uh don't, don't come in. Mm. I want to spend these last moments with my brother. Wow. And, uh, uh, yeah, I got this from Roy because I mean from Ron because yeah, Ron, yeah. Ron arrived at the hospital that Friday morning.
0: And uh, so, so Walt passes away. Uh, what what happens after that at at the company? I mean, what what do you recall? Oh man, I
2: recalled. <laughs> The Walt Disney Studios without Walt Disney, it's like a ship without a rudder. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it probably was, right, for the, for, for the first year or two? I mean. I, I think for
2: nearly a decade. Really? We, so, we, huh? we, we sailed the ship in circles. <laughs> <laughs> I really do, because Walt Disney Studios without Walt Disney, how do you carry on without Walt? And, yeah. and, and we had no real, Walt has ne- had, had never named a successor. Right. I mean, I think there was a feeling that Walt would have liked his son-in-law, Ron Miller, to, to uh, take over. And eventually, after a number of years had passed, Ron Miller did uh, take the helm, first, first with kind of like a co-CEO with Card Walker. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, Ron Miller became the chief executive officer of Walt Disney Productions. Yeah. And so uh, Ron did eventually run the studio. And, and as a matter of fact, when I returned to the studio in 1983, Ron Miller was still the chief executive officer of Walt Disney Productions. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the next few months, the studio would have totally new management. And that's when the Michael Eisner and Frank Wells Sure. Came yeah. in to 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 run the company in 1984.
0: Now, after Jungle Book was completed and released, uh, what did you work on uh, at the studio? I actually left the Walt Disney Studio. You did, uh, and, yeah. and you, you set up your own production company at that point. Exactly, exactly. Uh, losing Walt Disney, uh, talk about
2: an inflection point. If if ever I was going to choose to move on. Uh, This was the time. Mm -hmm. With the passing of Walt Disney in 1966, that same year I launched a production company along with my colleagues that we called Vignette Films Incorporated. And we launched our own production company to do uh, animated films, live action films, uh, whatever we could do. We were a a group of ambitious young men, um, probably uh, naive to a certain extent, because we had no idea what it would take to run a business (laughs) pretty daunting challenge but we launched we launched our own production company and we produced uh, uh, content for uh, we did everything from television commercials to educational films to corporate training films to films for the military all kinds of things just a grab bag of uh, film production but what that provided for us was a, a real education in film production where we had the opportunity to be everything from executive producer to messenger boy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We did every job from the lowest job to the top job and everything in between. It was a very exciting
0: time. As you always would do uh, uh, with your own business. Uh, you yeah. know, it's a you're, you're executive producer down to, like you said, messenger boy. Exactly, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and whatever was needed on any particular day to get right. the project done, right? That's, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, I understand, too, that you, you did some work uh, on some television projects, uh, for NBC. Uh, oh my, yeah. The, the, fat, the <laughs> fat Albert. The, I remember those uh, oh, yeah. very well. The Fat Albert uh, uh, Saturday morning show. Oh my, yeah. Yeah,
2: we we did some, you know, I can't even remember all the things we did. We did, you know, like show titles you know, for shows like Laugh-In, mm-hmm. uh, Soul Train. Uh, we developed Fat Albert for Bill Cosby. We we worked on so many uh you know, at the time they were simply jobs. We we never thought of any one particular thing as being significant. Mm-hmm. They were just jobs to keep the studio going. So yeah. put food only, on the table. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Put food it's on the table. <laughs> just basically bread and butter stuff. So <laughs> looking back in hindsight, you realize all the things you worked on, mm-hmm. but at the time you were just making a living. You were just keeping the doors open. You were doing what any production company would do. You just try to find work, you know to to, sure. to keep the company going yeah
0: I, w- I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your writing um and uh, doing the comic strips when yeah. when did, when did that all come together for you?
2: That was during the time I was away from disney uh, mm-hmm. I, I I was still outside uh, working on. You know, and again, I, I had worked for various studios on various projects over the years, so <laughs> that was a lot going on in my life. But it was in 1983, I think, top of the year, 83, an old guy, uh, an old writer named Cal Howard, who was working in Disney's publishing department. And Cal Howard was a guy who'd been around forever. He had worked in in animation, he'd worked in uh, television, uh, live television. He he was a director in, in New York back in the early days of television, back in the early 50s. So Cal had been around a long time. And so we had lunch one day at the Walt Disney Studios and Cal said, you know, you ought to work in Disney publishing. He said, we can use a good gag man and, and you're good at doing gags. You should come work in publishing. And I thought, well, I, I don't know if I could do that kind of work. I don't know. And so I got contacted by one of the editors at Disney Publishing trying to talk me into taking a job working in the publishing department. And I turned him down. This was early in the year. By summer, he contacted me again and he said, you know, we could really use a guy like you here at Disney Publishing. And again, I turned him down. Toward the end of the year, he <laughs> contacts me again and said, I really, really think you ought to consider this job as a writer at Disney Publishing. And I said, okay, look, I'll come in and I'll try it out. If things don't work out, I'll, I'll leave in a couple of years, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so that's how I began a whole new career away from animation, working as a writer in Disney publishing, writing everything from comic books, comic strips, children's stories, uh, the Mickey Mouse daily uh, comic strip, the syndicated comic strip, yeah. all of that stuff Uh, I started this whole new career (laughs) working in print, something that uh, I found to be very exciting because I often tell people that when you work in film, you're working on one story for like two or three years. But when you work in print, you're working on a number of stories every month. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to learn to write, you have to write a lot. And by working in publishing... I was writing all the time, story after story after story. And I think really that helped me as a writer because you can only grow as a writer by writing. And so publishing gave me the opportunity to write on a daily basis. You know, (laughs) I was always writing something, be it a book, uh, you know, a graphic novel, a daily comic strip, whatever it was, I was writing. And I think that was a good thing.
0: And, 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 you know, I completely agree with you. I, I, I think that, um, you know, Chuck Jones said, I, I always remember this quote from Chuck Jones. He yeah. said, everybody's got 10,000 bad drawings in them. So get, <laughs> yeah. get, get, get drawing, right? Yeah. So, the the so sooner you get them
2: out, the better. Yeah.
0: yeah so so you, you have to do to get better. Yeah, right. You know, exactly. and uh, and it's the same in writing. You have to write in order to get better and to hone your your own voice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, that's fantastic that, that yeah. you were able to to get into the publishing end of things. And, yeah, and by yeah. the way. Al John, I will mention that um, uh, Floyd has published a couple of books, and I actually had the pleasure of um, looking at uh, an a early manuscript, right, of uh, the Animated Life: A Lifetime of Tips, Trips, Tricks, Techniques, and Stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh which, yeah, that which, book. Which your late? That was the, your last book, I think. If I'm not. Uh, no, ac- ac- actually, my last. Did you do another one after
2: that? Yeah, my last book was a book that I I co-authored with Richard Sherman.
0: Oh, right, right, right. A Kiss Goodnight. Okay, yes. A Kiss Goodnight, yeah. Absolutely. But prior to A Kiss Goodnight, it was the animated life, a lifetime of tips, tricks, Techniques and stories, yeah, which was published by Focal Press in 2013, and uh, and
2: that's the and, one you helped me on,
0: yeah. And I I yeah. think that's a wonderful book because there there's there's sections uh, throughout it um, that that where you show actual examples of the storyboarding process, yeah, yeah. um, and, and and it's really I think a, a, a terrific book for anybody who is is looking to get into the story. Story end of things with animation, would you yeah. say?
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's also a fun book where even if you, you don't aspire to work in animation, it's kind of like a fun look at what it's like to be in this crazy business. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people who had really no real interest in animation uh, read my book and found it uh, a fun read because I just gave them a, a sense of what it was like to work in animation and to do this crazy job. And uh, I wanted to make it, you know, not boring and pedantic, Mm -hmm. but saying that the life of an animated filmmaker is really kind of like a life of fun. It's, It's really, it's really one of the best jobs in the world, I think.
0: I have some fond memories of you and I sitting in my office discussing that book a number you, of times. You, you and, bet. Yeah. I, I, and we always had, we always had a good time when we got together. Yeah. Uh, like we are right now. I mean, that's right. It's unbelievable. That's right. Um, but uh, from, from the publishing end of things, you actually tracked back into animation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened in 1993. Uh, I was still working in publishing and I, um, and publishing began to go through a transition. Mm-hmm. So once again, it was a uh, the perfect time to move on. A couple of friends of mine, uh, Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, uh, over at Feature Animation, had made a film called Beauty and the Beast. And it, it turned out to be a big hit. And so I told Kirk and Gary, I said, you guys make another movie. I want to work on your next movie. Well, it turns out they had planned to do The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And lucky for me, uh, they called me and said, "Uh, we're going to do this movie. Do you want to come work on it? And I said, you bet I do. So uh, once again, I didn't leave Disney, but I left Disney Publishing to move back to Disney feature animation to work on The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I thought that was going to be my last Disney film. My last Disney feature film was going to be The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But lo and behold, another film followed Hunchback and that was Mulan. And another film followed Mulan and another film followed that. (laughs) Another film follows it. So when you get get caught back in this loop, you start going from movie to movie to movie and you find yourself, uh, you know, you plan to do one film and you turn out doing a whole lot more than you planned for.
0: But you, you also you, you also weren't just working at Walt Disney Animation Studios. You also worked at Pixar as well, right? On, yeah. On some, of their, some of their big movies. That's right. Well, that came about by, in
2: a, again, by one of those weird, quirky things where one Friday afternoon, a producer from Pixar came down to Disney and met with us on the third floor of the animation building, uh, along with Tom Schumacher, who was one, one of our executives in animation and he said, you know what? We could use some help up at Pixar Animation Studios that our team up at Pixar, they're mainly young guys, uh, many of them just out of school. We could use people who have had some experience in this business. Would you be willing to come up north and work with us at Pixar uh, and and help us uh, as we develop our new films? And so I said, "Well, I'd be delighted
0: to go." You know, <laughs> I go I, I, without hesitation.
2: I said, "Well, I'll go."
0: <laughs> did you move lock, stock, and barrel up to uh, Northern California? Or h- I did sure did. Oh, you I did? sure did! Wow. And,
2: and that's why uh, a lot of other people uh, didn't choose to go because it is, you know, it, it is quite a decision when you have a home here in the Southland, you have mm-hmm. kids in school, to pack your bags and move to a new area. Uh, that's quite a decision, and so a lot of people were reluctant to do that, and and for good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have that problem because my kids were grown up; they were already out of the house, so I had nothing to hold me here in Southern California. So I said, uh, "I'll go up," and but my wife, who was an employee of the Walt Disney Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Could not go because she worked for Disney.
0: Sure, sure. She worked in
2: publishing, right? She worked in publishing. So she had to stay here. And I moved up to the Bay Area to work on Toy Story 2. And I was up there for three years. Believe it or not, three years.
0: Were were you coming back on weekends or, you know, a a couple times a month or whatever it was, you know? Yeah.
2: Pixar was very generous. I got to hand it to them. They were extremely generous. They knew that I was away from home. Mm -hmm. So they kind of like gave me an open ended uh, ticket on Southwest Airlines. Nice. Anytime I wanted to go home. All I had to do was go to Southwest. This is back in the days before. <laughs> back in the days when you could actually go to the airport and walk on a plane.
0: Yeah, right. I, this is pre 9 11. Pre 9 11. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. Wow. You yeah. could literally show up
2: at the airport.
0: Well, you could yes. if you were picking somebody up. You could walk right down to the uh, terminal, yeah. you know, right right into the terminal to the gate and and greet your guest coming off the plane. Right, that's I right. Remember? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The good old days.
2: Yeah, you didn't <laughs> need reservations. I could literally leave Pixar Friday afternoon, park my car in the airport parking lot, walk over to Southwest Airlines and say, "Do you have any seats available on the on your next flight?" And they would say, "Well no, well, well, maybe we do, you know, and here's a seat open here, and then all you had to do was because my ticket was already paid for by Pixar, mm-hmm. all I had to do was just walk on the plane, uh, yeah. no luggage, no luggage. It was just like taking a bus ride
0: <laughs> 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 a
2: bus ride from from Oakland down to Burbank, and now my car was parked in the Disney studio parking lot in Burbank. Wow. so you know it, it was it was
0: easy, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day. Back, back in, in the day, day. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, Floyd, I do want to ask you about, you, you set up a multicultural internet site called afrokids.com. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the
2: brainchild of my partner, uh, Leo Sullivan. Uh, Leo was one of my partners when we set up a, our film company back in mm-hmm. the 1960s, Vignette yeah. Films Incorporated. Well, Leo on his own uh, wanted to create this uh, website that he called uh, AfroKids and, and provide uh, educational content for kids of color. And um, it's kind of been his brainchild and he's still doing it. He's still working on it. Kind of like a, he's a, he's a, a one man band. Uh-huh. He and his wife created this uh, website and they supply all of the content, and uh, and they run it, and uh, and so and I still have a relationship with Leo because he's my old partner.
0: Sure, sure. So
2: whenever he needs uh, some help, and he says, "Floyd, I need you to do this and such," I'll just jump in and and say, "What do you need?" He says, "Well, I need a story. I need a story about this and such." And so I'll write him a story, you know, or I'll do I'll do some artwork, you
0: know. And and, and, and what's the gist of the website? I mean, what what, what are you, what's he trying to do with it, and what what do you contribute as uh, as far as story and artwork goes?
2: I think what Leah was trying to do with Afro Kids is to provide a um, uh, a place where young kids can go to to uh, access content on Black history. Mm-hmm. Uh, on black culture um, and, and on entertainment as well. It's not just all, all the learning. It's, it's, it's fun stuff too, Mm -hmm. but it is kind of like an entertainment hub that uh, focuses on, on black culture, black achievement, um, uh, a positive, a positive uh, place where kids can go. And I think that's, that's why uh, Leo did this it's more of a labor of love than sure. something that he's trying to monetize. Uh, Leo's been retired for a number of years, so he's doing Afro Kids as more of a labor of love. It's keeping him busy. Keeping him busy? Yeah. Providing uh, as he puts it positive content yeah. for African American kids. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um I I think we I, I we have to touch on Uh, a a 2016 documentary that was made about you, uh, Floyd Norman, in Animated Life. And can you talk a bit how that came about, Floyd, and who is involved with it, and where people, where our listeners can see that if they haven't seen it already? Well, okay, here's what happened.
2: Uh, (laughs) Some years ago, I was at the San Diego Comic-Con, and you probably... You yeah. know what that is. Sure, I was down in San Diego and uh, the famous illustrator, Drew Struzan, was there and a couple of uh, New York filmmakers had just completed a documentary on the life and career of Drew Struzan.
0: And and for our listeners, Drew, uh, really his his big um, um, uh, claim to fame really is that he did a lot of movie posters. Yeah, I yeah. mean he's an amazing illustrator, yeah. absolutely amazing. And and I, I I mean off the top of my head, I can't think of exactly which ones people should go look at. You would probably know better oh. than me. Oh, well, well, Star,
1: yeah, like yeah. Star Wars, Star Wars, like the Star Wars posters, Back to the right? Future. Al, John, you know this. Oh right? yeah. yeah. Well, well, Drew, Strews and. Is like the best, you know. You've got, yeah. you know, Star Wars. He's, legend. he's legendary. legendary. Yeah. yeah, Back to the Future, Alien. I mean, you name it, he's done it. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, he's incredible illustrator and, and album covers too. By the way, yeah, so, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Alex yeah, Cooper.
2: Drew has worked for everybody, and uh I mean, he's worked for Jim Henson. Jim Henson. He did the the Muppet, the Muppet movie poster. Uh, he did the thing for John Carpenter. Uh, he literally did that poster overnight. I mean, they needed that literally overnight the poster for the thing he's his clients had been steven spielberg george lucas he's worked for everybody Mm. and so these new york filmmakers these documentary filmmakers had made this film on the life and career of drew struzan and i went over to congratulate drew on the completion of this film and while there in the comic-con in san diego the one of the filmmakers said well I've 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 got this uh, the Drew film done now I'm I, I have to think about my next project I don't know what it's going to be. And a guy who was standing there in the group said, "Well, here's your here's your next project right here,"
0: <laughs>
2: and, and and he pointed to me, and I thought, "What are you talking about? I'm not you know I'm not somebody famous or." <laughs> You know, and, and, and so I just laughed it off, thought the whole thing was a crazy joke. Two weeks later, later, I got a phone call from the filmmaker said, I've decided that you are going to be my next project. I really want to do a film about your life and career in the animation business. And that's how that all got started.
0: And and it's a, it's really a wonderful documentary, and I have to say, um, uh, I I I'm in it a little bit yeah. uh, uh, because you and I were working together at the time. That's, that's uh, right. Uh, you you were working on a uh, uh, some bonus material we were producing for uh, hundred and one Dalmatians DVD release. Yeah. And, yeah. And and I I laugh when I, I, I when I first saw the film because they shot part of it. Because before I went up to Maine for three weeks. Yeah. And so I was clean shaven. And then they shot some more when I came back and from came Maine back, and I had yeah. a beard. Right. <laughs> so, but yeah. but but the um, where can people see that documentary?
2: Well, you know, when we first finished it, it was on Netflix for uh, two years. They could have seen it on Netflix. Uh, that contract, sadly, has uh, since... Um, you know that that contact contract is ended yeah. but there is a dvd available for purchase so okay. even though they can no longer see it online uh they can still purchase the uh dvd by simply i think you can go to the internet and type in floyd norman floyd, floyd norman movie dot, dot com, and then that'll take you to a to a uh, an address where you can actually buy the DVD.
0: Well, you know, they that really should be on one of the streaming services. I'm thinking like Disney Disney Plus should pick that up and put that on <laughs> Disney Plus for crying out loud.
2: Well, yeah, it, it is available because uh, we fulfilled our contract with Netflix. Yeah. So we are available. You know, Dave, speaking of, of, of your involvement with the film, it was your involvement that was a, a bit of good news for us as filmmakers because the Disney producers were... Going to shoot bonus material for uh, the Blu-ray DVD, right? But because our team of filmmakers were shooting me uh, doing the bonus material for you,
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that,
2: that opened the door for us to sh- to shoot at the Walt Disney Studio lot, because the Disney Studio is notorious for not allowing film crews, independent film crews. The film on Disney Studio property. Right. But because we provided bonus material for the 101 Dalmatians Blu-ray DVD, that opened the door for us to go to the Disney Studio and film on that lot. So it really worked out really well for all the filmmakers combined. The Disney producers got the footage they needed. Uh, Our producers got the footage they needed for their film. And it was a, a win-win all
0: the way around, and, and, and it was easy because it was the the, the footage being supplied for uh, the uh, DVD folks, yeah, that right. that that greased the skids so easily yeah. to bring the crew in, right? That's right. That that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, yeah that, I remember that was a, that was a fun uh, a fun day of uh, actually a couple of days of shooting because there were there were two separate shoots that were done.
2: Yeah, that's right. We did we did uh, the, the first pitch with the rough board mm-hmm. and, and then the final, the final pitch and then the the final film and the film actually had gone through the animation process and we could actually run the finished film. Uh, that, that was a lot of fun. That, that worked out. It worked out very well.
0: It, it, it did. And, it, and it was, uh, it it was one of those things where it was just really, uh, a serendipitous moment because, uh, yeah. I, I remember when that project came across my desk, I was yeah. like, oh, we got to bring a story guy in. Let me, <laughs> let me call Floyd because yeah. I think Floyd worked on 101 Dalmatians back in, uh, you know, back yeah, in back the in. day yeah. and, uh, and see if he'd be interested. And, yeah. uh, and of course you were, um, Um, And it was it was a great uh, it was a great experience. I I really enjoyed working on that project and working with you.
2: Yeah, it truly was. And the fact that none of this was planned. I mean, we hadn't been in contact with the Disney producers who were going to provide content for the DVD. Uh, I hadn't been in contact with Dave. Uh, We were all working separately. And then yet we all came together to yeah. to fulfill a mutual need so <laughs> yeah. it really it really all worked out just fine yeah it was
0: it was pretty terrific yeah so so now what are you doing now uh i want to ask you that question and then i want to follow it up with uh really what advice you would give to young artists that are just like starting out like some some young kid that's in high school what what, what do you what do you say to them
2: okay well, what I'm doing now, you can look back at, at the at the bulletin board behind yeah. me, where I have a lot of my color sketches. This started out as just as a as a hobby. I mean, yeah. I, to take a break from the world of digital, because I, you know, almost everything today is done digitally. Sure. I wanted to get back to pencil and paper, mm-hmm. pen and ink and paint and Prismacolor pencil. Mm-hmm. So I started doing these little sketches and boy, oh boy, uh, people began to rec- uh, Request their favorite drawings of their favorite character. So doing this stuff has kept me busy. Mm. But along with that, I'm also working on various projects because believe it or not, people call me and say, would you help me out? Um, I'm working on a feature film. I'm working on a TV show. And so I'm working in development on at least three separate projects right now. None of which I can really talk about at of this point. Of course not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, Although I will say, come yeah. on. Come on, between Just <laughs> between <laughs> us, <just laughs> be us friends, Floyd. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, <laughs> suffice it to say. I, I yeah, totally this, understand. No, no. <laughs> yeah. They're,
2: they're all they're all animation projects. And one one's a feature film, a tour for television. And but the fun part is it it, it keeps me busy, it keeps me going. And I'm just delighted that people still call me. And, and want my uh, my input on something that they're working on.
0: So I, I'm just and, and, delighted. And you're, working, and you're working with friends. Yeah. And, you're working and with working. all these people that you've known for years.
2: Exactly. And that's what's so great about this, our animation family, because we're all part of the same big family. We're all friends. We've all worked together on projects in the past. So when an old friend calls and says, hey, I could use your help on mm-hmm. something I'm doing Oh, that's just great. It doesn't get any better than that. So so there you go.
0: That's awesome. And now uh, advice. Uh, what advice would you give to uh, a young kid that's starting out?
2: Boy, oh boy, my advice to young kids, and, and I've had the opportunity to, back before the pandemic, to speak to a lot of art schools and to speak at universities, to speak uh, to young kids who want to get into this business, and I tell them, you know what? It is a great business, but if you want to do this job, you have to take it seriously. Uh, it's two things. There's a there's, there's two things that I would remind people of, and they were two things that Steve Jobs told me. And and again, I got to get I got to know Steve Jobs when I was up at Pixar. Uh, Steve was a dreamer. He says you have to have a dream. You've got a dream, and you've got to dream big. So that's part one. Part two is you got to work and you got to work hard. So dream, dream big, work, work hard. And if you do those two things, then you got a shot at being successful in this career. So I tell people, this is a wonderful business, but it's a business that requires commitment and diligence and hard work. It's not, it's not a, it's not a cakewalk. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna make something of yourself, you're gonna to have to work at it. You're gonna to have to do your job and, and be good at your job, be better than, than everybody else. I always say that, you know, be the guy that, that they want, be the guy that you don't go knocking on their door. They come knocking on your door mm-hmm. and they do that because you're so good, <laughs> they come looking for you. I said, be that guy,
0: be, be the one you, they're looking for. But, but when you get to that place of being that guy, yeah. You always have to remember that there's somebody nipping at your heels. Yeah. So you can't rest on your laurels. You have that's, to keep working hard, right? That's very true. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, I, and I'm a big believer in that you never can sit back and relax and say, I've done it all. I know it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm age 85 and I'm a student. I'm still learning. There's so much that I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I've done. Feature films, TV shows, short cartoons, TV show, all this stuff, done a lot of stuff, but there's still an awful lot that I don't know and that I still need to learn. So I can't relax and say, oh, I'm the old veteran, I've done it all, I know it all. No, I don't know it all. You know, I know a little bit and I'm learning more every day, but uh, you have to have that attitude of, of uh, of a learner,
0: yeah,
2: yeah, and and uh, lifelong,
0: lifelong. I mean, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you you know, learning is a lifelong endeavor, until exactly, until your last breath. That's that's learning. exactly it. Yeah, yeah,
2: you are a student until until you're not a student anymore. But you're yeah. always you're always learning.
0: It's fantastic yeah. uh i am just wondering al john do we have some questions from uh some of our listeners
1: well yes we do, do there we the go script. we have questions right wow how about that like magic <laughs> it is like magic so yeah. spencer asks you know you were a story artist on Kronk's U groove um, oh yes <laughs> what <laughs> You know, can you explain exactly to our fans what is a, a story artist? Now, you talked a little about you doing the storyboarding and things of that. Yeah. Um, with being a story artist, can you explain what that entails?
2: You know, it's really funny. Uh, we get into this thing about what what the heck is a story artist? It's it's kind of like what's a writer? You know, uh, we're we're all basically storytellers, and. Uh, it's just a matter of the tools we're using to tell our story. Uh, going back to the Jungle Book, uh, a writer like Larry Clements was writing using a typewriter because that was, that was the, the writer's tool back in the 1960s, a typewriter. Uh, when he handed his typewritten pages off to me, I use a sketch pad and grease pencils to put my ideas down on paper. But the one thing we had in common, we were both telling a story. Larry was writing, and I was writing. He was using using a typewriter, I was using grease pencil, but we were still telling a story. So to me, there's not a great deal of difference. Uh, To me, I I just like to use the term storyteller and not necessarily make a distinction between storyboarding or writing. When I worked in television, uh, the networks and my studio bosses wanted scripts, so I had to write script pages simply because that's what they were used to seeing. They wanted script pages. So I sat down at my computer, by then we were using computers, and I wrote a script following a script outline, simply because that's what the bosses were used to seeing. Later on, those script pages would be translated into a storyboard. But guess what? Still a story. It's all storytelling. It's just a matter of the tools you, you use. But, you know, bottom line is,
1: you're still telling a story. Right, very good He also yeah. continues and said Did you enjoy working on that production for Kronk?
2: Kronk you know, Steven? I enjoy everything I do I, I tell people I, I, I worked on the, the the most lofty, you know <laughs> Classic feature films into some of the weirdest TV stuff Like uh, The Annoying Orange Which <laughs> was... Uh, <laughs> really really stupid tv show for kids that's hilarious that was uh, <laughs> ta- talking fruits and vegetables yeah. if you can <laughs> if you can think of anything more lowbrow than that <laughs> but you know what i worked on uh, a couple of seasons of the annoying orange and i loved every minute of it, it is because hilarious. what i was doing was what i love and that is telling stories and making movies and whether it's a classy feature film or a down-and-dirty TV show that's just stupid, uh, it's, it's what I do, and I, I, I
1: love it all. Awesome. Jennifer yeah. writes, Mr. Floyd, I really want to get a commission from you for my husband's 50th birthday. Is Facebook the best way to get in touch with you? Are you even open to do commissions? <laughs> because everyone loves your yeah. your sketches that you post on yeah. you, on, on Facebook, Mr. Floyd. So, what, what's your choose, backlog? What's your choose, backlog? Choose one. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: have right here going for uh,
0: <laughs> Right.
2: No, I mean I'm, everybody I'm, yeah. I, I try to find time to do commissions. It's, it's kind of funny. I, I, I really don't have time because I'm really busy, but mm-hmm. I, I tell you what I will make time for you. Uh, I just had a doctor. Uh, I think he's a, a veterinarian and he wanted this uh, drawing of Donald Duck and and Daffy Duck squabbling. The two of them just just having an out. He said, hey, I want Daffy and Donald. And so I said, well, I don't know. I'll try to get to it. So one day when I had a few moments, I sat down and started drawing Donald and Daffy. And I was able to paint the finished uh, sketch in full color. And I packed it up and, sh- and shipped it off to him, I think, uh, earlier this week. So yeah, so I do I do find time to, to uh, do these sketches. And you can contact me. The best way to reach me is by my email, which is... Really easy, Floyd Norman at me yeah, that's perfect. Floyd easy. Norman at me.com. Oh, that, that is email. an
0: easy email to remember. That's an easy one. The, yeah. one the I
2: tell people if you don't get your commission, it's because you're not nagging me enough. I say <laughs> the people, the people that usually get their stuff first. Are the ones who are the greatest nags?
0: They just, wow. they the just sque- bug the, me. The, the old squeaky wheel gets exactly. Spoiled, That's huh? it. Yeah, the, That's sque- great. the you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was going to say, but like, said, you, you
1: know, got the, a be- you yeah. got a
2: better shot if you if you nag me. Yeah, the
1: floodgates <laughs> are going to be opening now, so this is not good. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out of the email because I'm I'm yeah. sure the fans are going to be. Uh, We're going to see who the you. chief
2: the chief nagger is. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You <laughs> know, be the
1: most annoying. We do have one last uh, comment, and it's actually for me. Um, I'm yeah. curious when you when you were um, tagged by uh, Soul Train to do the, the the probably one of the most iconic uh, intros for for pop culture TV, the Soul Train yeah. intro. Did Don Cornelius con- contacted you? Because I have to say, growing up, it was Saturday morning cartoons, oh. and then American Dan- Bandstand, and then Saturday night Soul Train. Yeah, um, in yeah. my house because I was so influenced. But my my parents were way into music, much like yourself. And yeah, and I loved uh, watching those shows, especially Soul Train, because of the the music. Um, did did he contacted contact you specifically because he, uh, of that show and um, you know your Black yeah. Studio? And I wasn't everything. contacted by Don
2: specifically. Uh, we were with Don Cornelius. Uh, on the stage down in Hollywood where we shot the pilot. We shot it uh, at at a a studio stage somewhere in Hollywood. And I was with Don Cornelius in meetings, but our initial contact came from the director of the show, uh, a young man at the time, uh, his name was Mark Warren. And once again, in Hollywood, it's always who you know. It's always somebody you've worked with before. And so we had work with Mark Warren as a director on a TV sketch comedy show. And so that's how we knew him and that's how he knew us. So when Mark was directing soul train for Don Cornelius, uh, he needed a title, he needed a logo. And so he gave us a call. And so what what did we do? We drove down to Hollywood to the soundstage where teenage kids were dancing. And he says, we're doing this show. It's a dance show, kind of like American bandstand and we need uh it's called Soul Train because it was kind of i guess based on Don Cornelius uh, Chicago radio show That's right yeah so they said we need a locomotive we need a groovy locomotive for our show and we need it to be animated and you guys are animators and we we got to we we need this done to put on the head of the, the head of our show it's the main title it's going to help us sell the show and so he says, "Okay, you know, you, you got to do this, and we need it in a couple of days." Oh. <laughs> that was a, yeah. that was the <laughs> capper. Of course, we needed.
0: Pe- people that, who ask for animation in a couple of days, you know. isn't that always the way, though, Floyd? because yeah. we, we we were constantly getting that over uh, at Disney Animation and special yeah. projects. People right. would come in and say, "Oh, you know, I, we need this thirty-second thing done. Is it possible to get it done in two weeks?" You know, yeah. and you're like, "What? We don't what? Even know what, what. You know, yeah. we don't even have the idea yet. What? What are you talking about? You know,
2: they they have no idea of the of the process. They have yeah. no no idea of the production pipeline." Uh, the people involved, how long it takes and they just say, oh, how soon can we have it? You know, <laughs> it's like it's like ordering from McDonald's, you know.
0: <laughs> I used to tell people, sure, we'll go over to the closet, we'll open it up, we'll have the characters come out, we'll film yeah. them and you'll yeah, it'll be yeah. done, you know. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> exactly. No, this is great stuff. So yeah, uh, well, yeah. I, I, I know that you've got so much going on. I, I We appreciate, of course, your time. You've been very generous with us, but uh, I know that you have a Vimeo account where you post some videos on occasion uh, which is really cool Uh, so I like that. How
2: how, how did you discover that because I I really haven't done any marketing campaign really Uh, only a handful of people know what's there. I I created this Vimeo account because I, I got it into my head to to tell these funny stories that happened to me while working at the Walt Disney Studio. Now they're not stories that require you know a long long drawn out show they can be told in about two or three minutes because it's just a funny incident. So I began making these little videos where I tell a funny story. That's all true. Stories that actually happened at the Walt Disney Studio back in the 1950s, 1960s and beyond. And so I have these little, I call them uh, funny Floyd stories and uh, (laughs) they can be seen on Vimeo. And they're it. all short. They they all run no more than three or five minutes, and it's fun stuff that happened at the Walt Disney Studio. So, Absolutely. if you had a chance, go over to Vimeo,
1: add, add it to the show notes, Al John. We will. Well, add, yeah. well, you know, you know, Floyd and and Dave, you know this. You know, I'm the research guy, so yeah. I, I yes, definitely know is, where to find is. you. Yeah. I will know where to find you, but we will definitely link to your Vimeo and your blog. By the way, Mister Fun's blog. How about that?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah your I, think, blog. I
1: think I call it Mr. Fun's journal. Now. Yeah. Mr. Called... Fun's journal. Okay. There it is. Yeah. We will link to that right. as well as uh, afrokids.com and for sure link to that. And by the way, um, I know if I don't mention this, uh, your, your cohorts are, are, are going to, are going to kill me. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to go ahead and mention it, but yes, you can get your video by the way, Floyd Nor- Norman, uh, animated life, which is yeah. probably w- one of the coolest films. Uh, you will check it out. Um, animator storyman, and troublemaker and i love the troublemaker yeah. part the troublemaker <laughs> part is probably one of the most intriguing portions yeah. of the documentary and so i definitely urge our listeners uh, to check that out but thank you so much yeah. you've been so generous with your time it's it's been great, love it. By yes. the way, I, my pleasure. I,
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, Floyd, because you you said Floyd's uh, or fun Floyd stories. Yeah, uh, yeah, that you titled those. Right uh, there, there is a uh, there is a um, a term uh, that some of us use when we meet up with Floyd. It's called Floydering.
2: Oh yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
0: which, that was I, which, which yeah. I which I love because yeah. when uh, when you know if, if I see Floyd at the commissary with somebody uh, and I come over and I start chatting with them, invariably somebody else comes over and all of yeah. a sudden we're all floitering. You're all floitering. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so,
0: very true. Very true. Yeah. But uh, Floyd, thank you so much for being on our show um, uh, we're going to have you back I know at some point in the future but unbelievable that you're 85 because anytime I run into you and see you I, I view you as a contemporary as somebody who is you know uh, in my age range you yeah, know, you're, yeah. you're a young man and I think this animation business uh, keeps us all young which is fantastic so it's, I think so
2: yeah my, my, my hero was
0: Joe Grant Yes, nope. Joe Grant, who yeah. I, I, I have a picture hanging on my wall here uh, yeah. of myself with Roy Disney and Joe Grant at Joe's 95th birthday party. Yeah. And he, it was a work day for him. Yeah. You know, remember that? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Well, thank you so much, Floyd, for being on the show. Thank uh, you, guys. Have, it's ha- been ha- my pleasure. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon. You bet. Thanks a lot. I, I I enjoyed it.
2: Skull Rock Podcast, your weekly dose of pixie dust.
1: Dave, what a great interview. What an awesome, awesome gentleman. Disney legend, Floyd Norman. Amazing.
0: Oh, he he's terrific. And I got to tell you, I mean, you would not know he's 85 years old. I mean, what? honestly, I mean, he's just got he's just got such a wonderful outlook on life. And he's just charged up every day uh, to work on projects. You know, I, I alluded to the fact that I had picked up the phone and, and asked him if he'd be interested in working on a, a thing that I was doing many years ago when I was at the studio. Uh, and and there was no hesitation. It was like, Absolutely. I'd love to be on that, you know? And, uh, and so I'm just so thrilled that,
1: um, you know, we, we had him on the show uh, as a guest. Absolutely. And once again, just, just such a great guy to the Disney fans out there. I know everyone uh, that's out there is listening, really appreciates, um, you know, his work over the many decades um, and he continues to be just an amazing, amazing guy. Um, before we wrap the show up, I, I do have to say this, this just in, you know, um, Disneyland alumni posted on Instagram, the passing of Disney artist, Charles Boyer, and, uh, what an amazing artist, um, Charles, you know, is, and had, had, uh, really helped, um, or at least a lot of Disney fans know, uh, of his work. So, um, he, he was
0: one of the he, he was the original artist down at uh, at Disneyland yeah. uh, and did some of those really iconic um, images. The one that really comes to mind is, is that uh, triple portrait, you know, the uh, Mickey looking in the mirror, painting Walt uh, uh, yep. portrait that he did. Yep. Yep. It's very kind of Rockwell-esque. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Just a wonderful artist and uh, condolences to his family. Uh, and boy, what a legacy he leaves behind. No kidding.
1: No kidding. And if you were um, lucky enough to have one of his pieces in your collection, you definitely are a very lucky individual um, because his, his work um, is amazing and his work will continue to live on in the fans and the hearts of fans around the world so uh um rest in peace you will be missed um charles boyer rest in peace we've come to the end of yet another show and dave you've got tons of your friends coming back uh to to share their stories with us over the next few weeks
0: that's right. We, we've we got Dan Jupe, animator, director. Dan Jupe is queued up for uh, for next week. We've got effects master animator, Ted Kiersey coming on the show, Christy Maltese, Bob Gurr. We have so many people lined up. It's crazy. Dave Proxma is going to be joining us in March. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just so excited that uh, we get to talk with all of these folks uh, week in and week out. It, it's just really a lot of
1: fun. Oh, and I can't wait. It's Going to be great. It's kind of like a Comic Con every single week when you get to hear and sit back and, and listen to all these stories. It's Comic Con without the comic crud. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. Anytime, you know, Dave, you, you've done so many conventions over the years, you know, you get the con crud. Uh, and if you're, if you're not careful, you get sick afterwards. So hopefully mm-hmm. now everybody can enjoy these types of uh, panel discussions, these discussions uh, without the fear of getting sick from their iPod. <laughs> you know, So enjoy it. So once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, thank you so much for listening. I hope you subscribe to the show on the various uh, podcast platforms, Apple, uh, Google, of course, Spotify, and of course now iHeartRadio. Just go ahead and give us a like on those social media platforms as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and uh, check us out. Uh, you can also uh, check out our email too. You can send us those emails. Uh, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at Skullrockpodcast.com. Write us, uh, or Dave at Skullrockpodcast.com. Any final words, Dave? Well,
0: Aljon, I do have a couple of things I wanna to mention to you. Oh my gosh, um, yes, yes, the, yes, I forgot. The, uh 3D Disneyland, like you've never seen it before, my latest book. Uh, just won a gold award from the Nonfiction Writers Association Book Awards
1: yay oh, oh, a big applause I love it uh, I love it congrats dude the crowd goes Dave.
0: wild uh, so I'm really thrilled about that um and uh, certainly uh, people can uh, uh, check out the book. You can get it wherever uh, you buy your books. Uh, and uh, I hope you do check it out and hope you enjoy it. It's uh, gotten some great reviews and now the first award, which I'm so thrilled about. So uh, well-deserved, Dave. well-deserved. I just wanted
1: people to know that. Well, well-deserved, Dave. The book, once again, is amazing. I've got a copy, and you should too. Uh, you can check out the book there at Old Press, and uh, we'll put a link there at the bottom of the show notes, as well as Amazon. So you can check out, uh, check out those books there. Absolutely. And, pick and
0: Barnes & and Noble and Books A Million and your independent bookstores. That's right. Check out your independent bookstore. They can
1: order this book for you. Yes. If they don't have it, demand it uh, because they'll they'll definitely be helping you out and you will be helping out those independent retailers just down the street from you. So support and shop local. We appreciate that. And uh, speaking of that, Dave, I guess there's nothing else we need to say other than have a great week, everyone. And thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, disney foodie and theme park fan i'm al john go i'm the husband who's also disney star wars and marvel comics fan and together we host a disney list podcast every week you'll hear us list our favorite things about disney theme parks films shows travel marvel and star wars in a top 10 list rankings and more that's an impressive list Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.